Swampside Chats, a podcast where every week communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. This week is the second part of our section-by-section discussion of Lenin's left-wing communism, an infantile disorder. Section 6. Should revolutionaries work in the reactionary trade unions? Uh, too long didn't read. Yes. The answer is yes. Moving on. No, I yes. mean. Well, I mean, this is a, this is like uh, Lexi said, the more interesting part of the uh, pamphlet, possibly because it kind of talks about what strategically, you know, we're supposed to take from all this, you know, vis-a-vis trade unions. So someone set me straight. Forgive the expression. Um, did Lenin eventually, I guess, just cave to Trotsky on the independence of the trade unions? Like he just was like, "Yeah, actually, Trotsky, you're right. Fuck it. Like, um, let's let's like." I think this is around the time to... that debate was happening. I'd say because this doesn't seem like I. I remember at some point Lenin was arguing against Trotsky. Uh, and Lenin was trying to keep the trade unions independent, and here he's arguing for the party domination of the trade unions. Who's like, arguing that it's the workers' party, so why should they be separate? Which is, I think, a really fundamental mistake. It makes me want to, like, rehabilitate some notion of separation of powers or something because of how well, fundamental a mistake it is. I mean, it's a question of, you know, should the trade unions be completely independent from the party? Should the party influence trade unions? I mean, it depends on the stage of development. I mean, what, what, if the, what if the trade unions do want to vote to affiliate with the party? I mean, that's how I kind of understood it. If, I mean, if they, should, if they do, they should be allowed freedom to leave then. Right, that's the problem. How do you get yeah, freedom well, yeah. to leave once you're sewn into the state? <laughs> well, I mean, the, the question is, I mean, well, it's, more, the, it's more a question to me of like at what point would the trade unions become integrated? And it seems to me you'd be at like a higher level of socialism probably than they're at right now. Yeah, and I think I think it's really only a problem if there's only one party. If there's multiple parties, then it's different for a trade union to be in an alliance with a party because it's actually that's actually a good thing because it shows that trade unions are becoming politicized. He's not talking about a workers' state here. He's talking about in developing, you know, the class struggle and developing, you know, a party and, and not when we're in a revolution. I just say that because of his comments towards the beginning about the, quote, oligarchy. He's kind of mocking the idea that the Soviet state, I mean, I guess at this point, it's not as silly to think that because they're still functioning Soviets, but by, especially when you knock those out. But even before you knock those out, like, Trade unions or, like, whatever, like, bit one big union there is, syndicate, whatever form it takes, seems like it should be the pole of, like, you know, the assertion of worker interest as worker as opposed to, like, a more directly democratic political interest or a representative, like, layer of political interest. And in order to check 
the nature of both direct democracy and like representative politics, there would be some kind of body to express the economic interests of the proletariat. And so that's, I don't know, that independence seems important. And it, I guess the reason that I'm, I think it has a broader implication for the merger formula is, again, there's the Kautsky or Stalin problem when looking at Lenin's talking about the merger formula and the reading of what is to be done that Lars Lee does brings out the Kautsky um, more so like, uh, you know, we have to guide the workers' movement, even though it's cool, workers are totally going to be revolutionary by themselves, but we just have to, like, help them out. Whereas when I'm reading this, it it's, it's kind of cuts against Lee's reading of what is to be done. And to me, it's a question of whether, I, I don't know, I think the revolution, like, rightly makes Lenin a little more sour about that stuff. Um, but I guess the question is, for how long had he felt this way? <laughs> this actually kind of made Lee's reading of what is to be done more convincing, just because I see so much of the Kotskyist or the, you know, Kotsky's influence in here. And his general idea of, you know, building a party and building that party it- up into a proletarian state and he's arguing that really what we need to do is we need to engage with the masses. And but if the mass if, party, but if the, we can't have like a small minority that just has a push, which is kind of what the left communists were arguing for at this point. Let's just face it. Like the KEPG sure, pushes. Yeah. They but that, you know, a small minority would, you know, guide the working class in the councils. And, you know, there had to be a push in order to, make the working class rise up out of his Menshevik slumber, so be it. Whereas, um, I think really what Lenin's trying to get at here is that you need, this is a, it's a protracted struggle that, you know, is waged over a period of time, both peacefully and, you know, inevitably violently. And we can't forget about the importance of these legal peaceful tactics because that's what, you know, gives us the bread and butter of the revolution itself. But if Lenin wasn't worried about the workers, then why would he insist on party like domination of the trade unions? Is that what he's arguing for here? I thought he was simply arguing that communists should work within within the trade unions. Yeah, I think I think that's. I'm stuck. I'm stuck on the front part because I'm constantly trying to figure out how seriously I should be taking Lars Lee, and I really like Lars Lee, yeah. but uh, but he's like a music teacher in Toronto, and from what I understand. He may have said something nice about Grover Fur, and so I just, you know, I have that thing in my gut that makes me want to be like, okay, Lars Lee, like I like your book, and I want to see how it holds up uh, during, you know, 1920. Anyway, we could talk more about the broader strategic point now. Funny, it's saying that you know you need to go wherever the masses are, and you need to like, work with them, and sometimes this is in reactionary trade unions. And if you don't go there and if you don't challenge the leadership of the bureaucracy, you know, you're just you're 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 basically letting them have power, basically. We're not challenging it. Yeah. This seems like correct in principle. Um, yeah, and the problem is what happens when the union bureaucrats have influence on the party that's undue, which is a big problem, especially because a lot of the finances for, you know, a party comes from trade unions that are affiliated from it. 
And so what happens when, you know, the trade union leaders decide that they disagree with, you know, the party's left-wing stance on something and decides to kind of just say, well, we're going to go with our money and collapse the party, which is kind of what happened in 1914, actually. Interesting. Yeah. I, but, I, um, guess, I guess when I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, you know, there's like 5% of the workforce in trade unions in the United States and how, like, not that they're... I'm, you know, certainly not saying that I know what would replace the trade union struggle or something, but we are in a kind of a different situation because Lenin is talking about, look, the workers are in the unions. Right. So I mean, today is a question them. of how we get the workers organized in the first place, which right. may that, you know, we shouldn't be wasting our time in the existing labor unions. That that is that is an argument that I'm willing to accept. I'm not willing to accept the argument that unions, as such, are you know reactionary and like like no, not not as just a whole, but like yeah, it's it's like those I don't know those types. Even though I think they're approaching it in like a wrong way, kind of look more sane than you know some of the like let's take it back to the good old days like like Orthodox Marxists or, or, or Leninists or social Democrats, just because, you know, one of those stopped clocks is pointing in the right direction right now. Yeah. Like the, the working class is like extremely like decomposed and like spread apart and atomized, at least in the United States. So, you know, talking about, you know, trade union work or even working with the democratic party or something like that as a way to get access to the masses is just, you know, it's just delusional at this point. Well, that's yeah, that's what's on my mind because, uh, yeah, like when I, I was when I'm thinking about Lenin's points about going into situations that aren't necessarily fucking progressive and trying to persuade it that way because there's an important social base at stake. Um, that it's that last clause that's not there for almost all the things that we could think of engaging with right now like um that's it's that last clause you know that the masses are there um and so like it's more like okay. we're, at, we're at that period before there is a trade union movement even where you know we're only seeing the beginnings of what could become a potential trade union movement Here's what he says. Here's what he says yeah. along those those lines of: If you want to help the masses and win the sympathy and support of the masses, you should not fear difficulties or pinpricks, chicanery, insults, and persecution from the leaders who, being opportunists and social chauvinists, are in most cases directly or indirectly connected with the bourgeoisie and the police. And by the way, you know, even having social chauvinists at this point would probably be a progressive improvement, but must absolutely work wherever the masses are to be found. You must be capable of any sacrifice, overcoming the greatest obstacles in order to carry on agitation and propaganda systematically, perseveringly, persistently, and patiently in those institutions, societies, and associations, even the most reactionary, in which proletarian or semi-proletarian masses are to be found. But there really aren't like institutions, societies, and associations, um, except maybe churches. Um, well, and, I mean, that is something, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, and this, well, this makes me think, too, like... Um, because I was once arguing with the Trotskyists about this. I told them to go, like, go tailgate at football games to, like, reach the masses. And That's maybe, actually not the worst idea. <laughs> maybe think, like, is 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 Colin Kaepernick, like, the greatest uh, proletarian organizer right now in America? 
I mean, in a spectacular. I, mean, I don't know. I, I don't see what's wrong with tailgating at football games for communism. I mean, <laughs> well, that sounds honestly, better than most of what the left tries to do. You honestly, know? you you actually wouldn't want to go to football. You'd probably want to go to like um, Buffalo Wild Wings or something like that because like football games are so expensive to go to. Like it's really only like it's really only PB and bourgeois people who go to them now. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, but or even or maybe you'd go to college games. I don't know. But anyway. Um, yeah, like that—that's—that's that's the real challenge. That's almost how this doesn't actually doesn't have relevance for us right now. Is that, um, yeah, there really isn't like a oh, trade no. union movement to actually like go and infiltrate in this way that would actually really be powerful. And it also kind of explains a lot of like the appeal of like left communist theory right now because there really yes. is like it, like it, it like the, what the left communists are prescribing actually makes more sense now than it did back then because you know yeah. That's the thing that yeah, I that always gets crazy. me. I mean, I think that there's a sense to where people can doubt the possibility that anything has a social base, that they just get so caught up on this that they refuse to even see potentials where they might be because they just don't want to ever admit that they're wrong. Well, well sure. Like, I mean, it's also tied into like a lot of the just kind of general like political nihilism that exists. Yeah, right. I think people take this political nihilism too far sometimes, and but they the, really the, just say, "Well, it doesn't matter what you do because it's not going to change anything, so you should just do nothing." And that's but, you know, that's just look. We could reject that conclusion, but the whirling political nihilism has a real basis in political reality. Since well, something that since needs to be fought. Since the destruction of of like the golden age of of trade unionism and like any political agency, like of of that that could be meaningfully said to be working class, there's been a consistent pattern in bourgeois politics. I shouldn't say bourgeois, just you know, politics in general is throw the bums out everywhere, like almost in every place with you know free elections. The only pattern you see is zigzag. Fuck well, them. Yeah, I mean, anti-corruption anti- is—it's anti-corruption is your perfect right-wing political platform. I mean, sure, but this is this is like it's like a secular crisis of political representation that is a, that all political tendencies have to recognize in order to do serious politics. It's the only way to grapple with what the fuck just happened in mainstream politics. Someone who one day was the insurgent vote becomes the thing to insurgent vote against. That's all I'm trying to get at. That's well, yeah, like the long-term pattern. It's a long-term right. pattern. So I think this appropriately enough brings us to Section 7. Should we participate in bourgeois parliaments? Yes. Yeah. Well, basically, that's what he argues. That's, yeah, he basically says, like, if you know the working class needs to put up its own representatives and the halls of parliament and argue for its positions and argue for, you know, an alternative way of running society. We can't just leave the parliaments to the um, bourgeois. He actually are, he starts out by saying like, okay, so your argument is that, you know, it's, it's historically obsolete. Well, let's say that it is historically obsolete. And we're now in the era of, bourgeois, of, you know, proletarian dictatorship. Well, the proletarian dictatorship doesn't exist in Germany. And so as long as there's not a proletarian dictatorship, your party needs to fight for all political space that is possible, regardless of you know, you know how you know bourgeois or because it you know it's all parliaments are basically bourgeois, you know, and so it's just a question of you know do we just leave that space uncontested or do we actually you know fight for that political space? 
like I said, is he's trying to think strategically rather than, you know, in this abstract, you know, historicist sense. I think it's uh, what I think is unique about Lenin, especially from Kautsky, is the sense that the bourgeois parliament needs to be destroyed because it's part of the state. Um, And that, you know, this isn't like an institution that we can at all preserve for some kind of democratic legitimacy for, you know, the future dictatorship of the proletariat that just needs to be like repurposed. And well, he sees it as uh, using parliament to destroy parliament. (laughs) Right, which is what some people who work in the Democrats say. You know, I'm I'm destroying the Democrats by working in it. But like, yeah, I mean, le- you know, we've le- all heard le- that from DSA people. But, but le- Lenin means it in no seriously. I'm gonna fucking launch a coup and destroy the shit. I mean, not really coup, but you know what I mean. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, he's saying like we need mass. And I think another thing here that he's arguing for is like we need support from the masses. Like right now. The problem is that I think it actually is some similarity today because at this period in time, like the Russian Revolution, the mass kind of kind of revolutionary way over Europe was dying down. The death of Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, you know, things in Germany were going in a very confused and you know fucked up direction, and the Comintern did make a lot of mistakes. I think that there is a problem of building mass support that the left has today, that we need to build organizations that can actually engage with normal people and convince them that, you know, we can, you know, help them fight for their interests. And Lenin is, you know, he's dealing with that problem. Like, how do the communists who've split from the social democrats, how do you have a reputation for being violent and unruly, you know, because of the the Bolshevik revolution? How how do we convince the social democratic workers and the more conservative workers who, you know, might have some socialist ideals but don't like, you know, our anti-nationalism or our anti-clericalism or whatever? Like, how do we eventually, how do we work to get them on our side? And there's really nothing in left communist thought that addresses that question. Because the idea is, for the left, for left communist thought, once you try to fight for you know, mass support, you're already watering down your program at that point. Like That's the first thing you do wrong is want the masses. You want a small elite vanguard. Whereas yeah, think, Lenin yeah. is saying, we need, you know, we need to win people over and convince people, basically, to become communist. And that's going to involve a lot of legal action. So um, Lenin later in, in this section argues against um, some Dutch left arguments in favor of non-participation in parliaments. Um, they basically argue that when the capitalist system is broken down and society is in a state of revolution, parliamentary action gradually loses importance as compared to the action of the masses themselves. Um, and then Lenin retorts, the first sentence is obviously wrong since action by the masses, i.e. a big strike, for instance, is more important than parliamentary activity at all times, and not only during a revolution or in a revolutionary situation. Um, And he basically argues that this obviously untenable and historically and politically incorrect argument merely shows that very clearly that the authors completely ignore both the general European experience, the French Revolution before the French experience before the revolutions of eighteen forty eight and eighteen seventy, the German experience of eighteen seventy eight to eighteen ninety, and the Russian experience of the importance of combining legal and illegal struggle. Um, and he basically yeah, argues another big argument he makes is how you know the Russians what made them especially important was their combination of legal and illegal struggle. You know, both the ballot and the bullet. 
Well, do we do we buy his argument that the first sentence is obviously wrong? Like that parliament becomes less important as revolution becomes more possible. Well, for the I reason, think that's been for I the think so. he's saying. Like because a lot, of, a lot of revolutions happen because of parliamentary crises. Wow. Yeah, actually, actually, it totally rings false to me. I'd love to say that I think that the the motion of the masses always matters. I actually think the statement is written like holds up pretty well that it's that it's in these situations of revolution that masses like get some gravitas and that and it's, when, and when it's we live in, when we live in a situation like now, it was actually something like the Sanders campaign or something that ends up being. Uh, a, a mover more so than like occupy right well i mean like um what, what, what lennon actually takes the issue with specifically is the idea that he argues that mass action and strike actions are always more important than parliamentary stuff in any circumstance and not that in other words the statement's correct about that time but it's it's incorrect in that that's basically that's always true and there's nothing that's it, he's basically arguing against this periodization and this idea that we've entered this yeah. period where parliamentary action is irrelevant and we just need to focus on mass action well yeah he's saying that you know you have direct action and you have parliamentary action and they both matter and they both feed into each other and that's what the bolsheviks did to get mass support we used a mixture of illegal and legal tactics to you know win you know support from the working class and become a party of the working class and this is what you people need to do instead of, you know, posturing as so revolutionary that you won't even run in elections or work in certain trade unions. You need to engage those people because let's just face it. I, one of the reasons I think Bernie interested more people from that interested more people than Occupy, which was a very direct action oriented movement, was that people are used to relating the politics through elections. That's how we are just that's just how we typically relate to election. So the politics through elections. And if you completely leave that sphere of political reality, because we can't deny it as an existing political reality. If you leave that sphere of political reality simply to you know the bourgeoisie and don't try to contest it at all and don't try to subvert it, then you're never going to get like a, a, the masses, like a decent, like a, a decent type of majority ever. Well, the problem is like okay, so I think what people's concern is is that by entering into government, or at least entering into parliament, that you will basically lend some legitimate authority to this institution that you ultimately want to destroy. Um, and I don't think that's true necessarily. I think it can actually accomplish like a good deal of subterfuge um, and actually really delegitimize a government in a major way by participating in uh, the you know sort of congressional or parliamentary body. Um, case in point, uh, the contemporary Republican Party. I think that they actually provide a pretty good example of how to paralyze and delegitimize um, you know even a federal government. So. Additionally, this is where we have to go into the McNair stuff and talk about the difference between assuming, you know, executive power when you don't have the power to, like, implement the rule of the proletariat versus being a principled, patient, revolutionary opposition. Um, well, I mean, that's definitely what Lenin is arguing for here, I'd say. He's, he's, he's not arguing for just taking executive power through parliament. Like, he's... He's basically saying, listen, like you're, you're saying that, oh, if we join parliament, it will confuse the workers because the workers will think that that legitimates parliament. But it's like, no, the workers aren't that dumb. They can figure out that 
you know, we're running candidates, but we also want to overthrow it. Like they can figure yeah. that out. It's not that complex to where like workers are going to be, you know, misled by your tactics. Like they can get that. Yeah, we want to overthrow the government, but like we're going to like subvert that government by voting our people into it. Once you get like, people on your team, you can actually get like a good deal of latitude. I mean, like Republicans again, like this is a good, you know, we should learn from their example. Like they're constantly able to like violate their own like mores and customs and still get away with it with their base because the base is fundamentally on their team. Like Trump could stand up in front of a bunch of Boy Scouts and brag about his sexual exploits. They can elect all these draft dodgers and then you know, look at what they did to John Kerry. You can shit on somebody who was like literally in Vietnam and try to pretend like he was lying about being in Vietnam. Like you can do any of that stuff because also and you can get away with it with the base because they're ultimately on your team. Like they'll forgive a good deal. Um, especially if you know, you're basically making materially necessary compromises within, the, within a particular situation. I mean, yeah, I mean, all that is well taken, and that is essentially why the Sanders campaign mattered at all in an important way. Um, and of course, the counter critique is if we agree about the problem with trade unions and we're in a situation, what we're in suggests some kind of political determinist solution, something where that comes from a sphere of people joining political organizations, not necessarily like, you know, basing it in trade union activity. Cause that's well, yeah, exist. but uh, I think and, it's and, more so that, you know, people have the idea that parties formed out of the unions, but in reality in Germany, it was really a party that formed the unions. Sure. It was but the it's, other way around. But there's also, I don't think that there's also a catch 22 about base building. Not that there can't be political base building. That's essential. Um, the problems with left unity, it's actually kind of funny, some of the stuff that Lenin is talking about, like the attempts later in Britain to form like a united communist party, which apparently didn't work for 100 years <laughs> either. Um, yeah. But but e like even when you have a more active labor movement and you have like serious labor unions that could theoretically discipline a bunch of the socialist intellectuals, to like actually form uh, something that makes sense and isn't just some kind of weird extension of opportunism and the swamp. Yeah, it's still a challenge then. And I guess like Lenin for his context is absolutely correct. And because there hasn't been like trade union power, there also hasn't really been any like believable proletarian like political expression. And even the trade unions that did exist like capitulated hardcore um, so people really do associate politics with the stink of the swamp. And I think that's the stronger form of the left-com argument is that there's something about the stink of the swamp that you need to, you need to like convince people that you're go, only going into it to like attack it. And the, the, you need some kind of base to be responsible for in order for that to hold. And I think that's possible, and I think this section is more relevant to us than the trade union stuff. But because of the problems with the trade union stuff, we, you know, it's a challenge. It's a, like Lenin is right in principle, though, about this stuff. Like the, the 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 masses of people, the big numbers, like that shit matters. Yeah, politics only happens in the millions. Yeah, says. it's one of one of my favorite quotes in here. So uh, should we move on to the section on uh, left wing communism in Great Britain? Um, yeah, I mean, I adored that just because of paying attention to the Communist Party of Great Britain, PCC, 
kind of stuff around left unity and seeing the continuity in that debate there. And I also had a lot of sympathy for the people that he was quoting. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of thought. I kind of skimmed this section, I'm not going to lie. Uh, um, I mean, basically his argument is that they shouldn't be afraid to do labor and treism, basically, right? Is that uh, my, the, the, the left communists in England, they were anti-parliamentarists and they were against working within the Labour Party. And so that's why they split from the official communist or the common turn, basically. They were led by us. Uh, Sylvia Pankhurst. She seems pretty badass, actually. And I, I like the other guy, Comrade Gallacher. Um, I actually liked what they had to say. It strikes me as a sort of like left center, like center left position or something where um, Lenin has, he actually has like formal advice for the British communists. Uh, the British communists should unite their four parties and groups into a single communist party on the basis of the principles of the Third International and obligatory participation in parliament. The Communist Party should propose the following compromise election agreement to the Hendersons and Snowdens. I mean, in my mind, I'm substituting Bernie for that. I don't know how vulgar that is. <laughs> um, it let us jointly fight against the alliance between Lloyd George and the conservatives. Um, let us share parliamentary seats in proportion. Uh, for the workers' votes polled for the Labour Party and Communist Party. Let us retain freedom of agitation, propaganda, and political activity. Of course, without this later, latter condition, we cannot agree to block because that would be treachery. Um, yeah. And so the, the, the point would be to maintain some kind of political um, independence and autonomy um, while more or less, you know, going into, it seems like, it seems like this could potentially be justifying a, a joint, like government, or something like that, with with labor. Um, if you had a communist yeah. party with, I mean, this is this strikes me as being maybe a center right position. I hate to you know do that, but just going along McNair's kind of communist strategy spectrum, like this seems to be a split between. Uh, two centrist tendencies, two parties. Yeah, it's it's parliamentary very similar tendencies. to Kotsky's position. And yeah. I think um really like it's interesting kind of how so much of this like you know Lenin was so um you know obsessed of you know making all these parties you know participate in elections. Like electoralism was a required thing for joining a common turn. And the thing is there were you know a lot of people in the communist movement at the time who didn't want that. You know, a lot of the syndicalists who came to the common turn were like, no, why, why should that be a required thing? Like, and Lenin kind of was going against the masses in in this and trying, and uh, not, you know, the masses at large, but the masses of communists who existed already, you know, because there were a lot of rank and file communists who were against parliamentarism and participating in it. But he's, you know, he's pushing against that because he realized, oh, it's, it's actually important. Well, I mean, actually, it reminds me of a Bakunin Marx split. Really, is is it's basically a repeat of that split if you think about it. Partially, like certainly. People get mad if you say that, but it is well, kind of so, it is sort a repeat of, of that split. I I, th I think I think there's a little more nuance here because, on the one hand, you have electoralism and the ability to participate in elections, but like uh, Pankhurst and. Gallacher seem to be on board with that idea, so they're not on the Bakunin side of things. On the other hand, you like you have a, a real, uh, you know, you have support for the labor candidates. Like, uh, 
Here, here's another interesting thing. Uh, we would put up our candidates in very few but absolutely safe constituencies, namely constituencies where our candidatures would not give any seats to the liberals at the expense of the labor candidates. We would take part in the election campaign, distribute leaflets agitating for communism, and in all constituencies where we have no candidates, we would urge the electors to vote for the labor candidate and against the bourgeois candidate. Comrades Sylvia Pankhurst and Gallacher are mistaken in thinking that this is a betrayal of communism or renunciation of the struggle against social traitors. On the contrary, the cause of the communist revolution will undoubtedly gain thereby. And then the famous quote, with my vote, I want to support Henderson the same way as the rope supports a hanged man. <laughs> um, which... I mean, that's kind of uh, the CPGB's position on Corbyn, if you think about it. Yeah, and I don't think that the hanged man principle holds up very well. Um, like for reasons I was saying before, there's a zigzag tendency. So a Corbyn loss yeah. might lead to uh, more of a right wing resurgence. And I don't know. I, I I just I think it was interesting. He's bringing up what you might call Dervager's law, where where there's you know two parties vying for power. You know, and like another enter. Another party entering is a spoiler, and anyone who's you know familiar with yeah. democratic politics, we all know this. This is why, this is why you know, people lost is because someone ran a third party. You know, um, I think it's interesting yeah, that, he, yeah. that he's he's pointing to how important it is to actually pay attention to what's called Dervidge's law, and and is emphatic that you vote for the Labour candidate. I don't think that this necessarily translates to the Democratic Party. <laughs> no, it doesn't. It does not. It, the labor, labor and Democrats are two completely different things. But I could see why someone would read it that way. And reading Lenin, again, offers, you know, two ways of... of... Well, yeah, reading Lenin, you have a lot of incentive to, you know, interpret in the way that you're psyched. You know, interpret. <laughs> I, I think it's important that I think it's important that it says against the bourgeois candidate. And if you're in a situation where it's all bourgeois candidates, you're dealing with a fundamentally exactly. different situation. And you know, it's, question... yeah, it's, it's it's really like Britain is just a it's a weird place. You know, bourgeois labor parties typically don't become as big of a thing as they do in Britain. But but if they do, then what? Like, do you treat oh, yeah, the labor party to... the same way because there's 25 percent? of the workforce or in labor unions and labor unions are hooked up to the party machinery. Like, yeah. I mean, I think you do have to engage with it and you do have to work inside that party, you know, even if it is, you know, all around the organized or on the bourgeois platform. I mean, there just... does seem to be a fundamental structural difference. Well, yeah, it's because, um, you know, Labor Party is based off of trade unions and gets its fund finance from dues from trade unions and is, you know, is, it's a labor, it's, it's, you know, it's a party for workers as workers. You know, it, it's not a party of the Democrats where it gets most of its funding from finance capital. It's the Labor Party still is, you know, most gets most of its funding from unions. Well, the irony is when you look at those top 10, like, uh, funders for the Democratic Party, you do see, like, those big business unions, like... Yeah, SCIU. And so, I mean, I, you know, that's, I don't know, that, it doesn't, it, it's still not, like, as integrated with labor, like the Labor Party is. Yeah, it's, it's, you it's, still can't make it. They're different parties. I mean, they, they basically the, the unions just give money to whoever will be moderately more favorable to them or allow them to exist. You know, they'll give money to Republicans. 
Yeah, it's happened many times. Uh, yeah, and, and so from you know, it's like, damn it, Lennon, can't you tell me how to live right now? Like, tell me, <laughs> like, yeah. can't, can't, don't you have some answers for us here in America? Um, I think he does have some conclusions for us in the last section. Yeah, the last section uh, is several conclusions. Um, although the conclusions are never really itemized, uh, it's kind of a long series of statements. He sort of recaps a lot of his arguments. Uh, talks about the particular historical period they're in, the gains that have made, kind of sketches an upward trajectory of things overall. Um, he goes, the history of the working class movement now shows that in all countries, it is about to go through and is already going through a struggle waged by communism, emergent, gaining strength, and advancing towards victory, primarily against primarily Menshevism, i.e. opportunism and social chauvinism, and then as a compliment to say left-wing communism. Um, which, I don't know, it seems like, I felt like that sentence was, like, starting out, like, kind of, like, more broad, and it's, like, it's marching to victory against, like, the other people within, like, the same tendency. I well, know. I was going to say um, something about historically about this is that um, this piece and terrorism and communism by Trotsky were actually required reading for all members of the common turn, which is, uh, like, it kind of shows how um, important this article was historically. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it was basically like the right opportunists were being attacked in terrorism and communism by Trotsky. And then, you know, the left, um, you know, deviationists are being attacked in this. So it was kind of like critiquing both the left and right of the common turn. And yeah. so you could say that, you know, this is kind of centrist, you know, it's, it's arguing for, you know, a position that's not right deviationism or left deviation, but somewhere but still revolutionary and pragmatic. So you, and I guess mm -hmm. one could be like, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's trying to just water down, you know, both sides and having something that's, you know, I don't know, like watered down or whatever. Well, honestly, I think it shows that the center tendency has its own left and right wing, because I'm not convinced that, you know, Pankhurst and Gallacher are, are left comms. They're not arguing for abstention. The strategy laid out here is more friendly to organized tendencies because they have numbers and they have, uh, you know, potentially organized trade union stuff on board. And so the center has its own tensions in it, I, I guess, is what this says to me. Um, like, I don't think, you know, this is a right-wing communist pamphlet, uh, but in the same way, I don't really think Gallacher and Pankhurst are really left comms. Like, at, mean, least, at least from what I'm reading here. Well, all the left comms didn't really agree, as we all know. Like, it's kind of ridiculous to try to slam Panacook and Bordiga into the same political tendency when well, they're... They do have... They, they did have a couple things in common in regards to elections and in regards to unions. The, yeah. That that tendency... I, well, I think... No, Bordiga was hard working within reactionary trade unions. Like... That's, Interesting. Start, yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, Bordigas are all about unions, like, like the actual like, Bordigas that publish newspapers and try to organize a party. Like, they actually do work in trade unions. Okay, I stand corrected. Well, I mean, there probably are some, like, Bordigas splits that are, like, anti-union, but, like, Internationalist Communist Party, they, they work with um, the SI Covas, the main union they work with. I think, you know, what the left communists kind of realize 
is true, but you know, but there's a problem with bureaucracy within the labor movement, and that capitalism, you know, kind of controls through the loyalty of the labor bureaucracy. But the thing is, is that they take these facts and kind of make these um, tactical principles out of them. Whereas Lenin says, no, we need flexible tactics, but we need to, you know, use those tactics in a way that keeps with our principles. But it's 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 really the principles that you go in with more so than the tactics that you use that matter, I guess. Yeah, it's a tough question because, you know, how much does working with like these reactionary things kind of reinforce them and reinforce their legitimacy? And it's not always super cut and dry. Um, it's yeah. uh, it's a difficult question. But the thing is, is you have to be willing to be flexible on it. I think is what Lenin is saying. It's like he's saying it's not yeah. always cut and dry. We just can't say never run in elections, never work in trade unions, never do that, and then say you know this is how we're going to keep ourselves from ever becoming opportunist. Is we're just going to like refuse to engage those things. Whereas Lenin right. is saying no, we have to can go into those bad places and work there because that's how we win support from people. That's how we create a political alternative. I think there's also a big kind of thing underpinning this entire piece is uh, much a sense of gradualism that may be running counter to a lot of what was in the air at the time, uh, where people had this very like this very heated sense of imminence in terms of like the revolution and so on and so forth, which you know it was kind of in retrospect a period of um, possibility and opening that would probably close. You know, by the 19, pretty much closed by the late 1930s. And so, in one sense, that kind of sense of urgency is uh, very important. But in the other, he's also saying that, you know, this is a process that's going to take decades. Yeah, he's like, all right. Yeah, I know, I know things are intense now, but calm down, calm down for a little bit because, listen, you know, the Second International still had important lessons to learn from, is kind of what he's saying here. I think he's like, yes, you know, we are entering. You know, a period of revolution, but it's not as simple as that. You know, us Bolsheviks, you know, we had to combine legal and illegal struggles, and, you know, you're going to have to do the same thing. It's not going to be. So I think that um, you still have this kind of like war communism mania going on a lot of the, the international communist movement where world revolution seems imminent. And that's why a lot of these left communist positions would even make sense to, you know, and even have like. You know, any amount of following at that time is because you had this feeling that revolution's imminent. And so, because of that, like, you know, the arguments of the left communists kind of do make sense. But Lenin is, is kind of saying, no, like, world revolution is not as imminent as you think it is. And that's not really what a lot of people wanted to hear at the time. Yeah, which kind of creepily makes uh, Stalin's later socialism in one country stuff and he was presenting himself as a continuation of lenin in a way like and you know there's a plausible way which you can read that like i don't know like oh. when the Trots trotsky is going for world revolution in a situation where you know shit has been mismanaged doesn't look like it's going to happen like there's a similar kind of inertia where it's like look it's just us right now okay like we have to we have to deal with our shit not to say again that you know that's the only way you could take Lenin, but like there is like a legitimate path there. Sure, I think I think Lenin recognized that you know Russia was going to have to find a way to at least hold out for 
long enough for other countries to have revolutions and that revolution might not be happening in the next couple of years in Germany and that really the communists might have to have a longer protracted period of struggle and organizing before the revolution happens. Yeah, although there, there, there's a speech in which he basically says about the German revolution, we're basically doomed. It's not the only thing he says about it, and he says other contradictory stuff, but he's sort of confident that, you know, something's going to come along. I appreciate this text as one of, like, the, you know, still part of the sort of the Lenin and Bolshevik that you kind of still... I don't know. The Vanguard Party thing hasn't hardened yet. We're still talking about the proletarian Vanguard and the vanguards of other classes and how the party needs to, like, a, you know, make an appeal uh, to people. Like, we're we're not dealing with, you know, the essence of the proletariat has been transferred to the party, so the party is, you know, it's cool. Like, yeah. you, you still have a sense. It's not full Lukash. Right, right. It hasn't become an ideology of Leninism quite yet. Yeah, exactly. Even even though there's this still text will be used to create the ideology of Leninism, but it's the big moment of Leninism is 1921 and Bolshevization, like you know, even pre-Stalin, like, and that's what makes this being in 1920 so important. It's sort of like like one of the last uh, Bolshevik before Bolshevization texts. I mean, I think Lenin actually becomes more critical of the bureaucracy later on after this text. Sure, but he's later on when Lenin starts becoming more and more critical of the bureaucratization of the Soviet state. But like Trotsky, you know, by then they've taken on so much of this stuff as principle, like um, as opposed to are kind of working with it in an ad hoc way, which is more honestly what's happening. Like, and that's why the general stuff that he's drawing out from the Russian Revolution isn't quite as nuts as what Zinoviev ends up exporting. Was the common term even Leninism, or was it actually Zinovievism is one thing I've had or I've heard people say, you know. But in the end, I think it doesn't even matter. Zinovievism is what most people mean by Leninism. Like... Even in, like, the broadest form of, like, you know, Marxist-Leninism has its roots in that kind of weird codification. I really appreciate the side of the Russian Revolution and, you know, the people that are into the Bolshevik Revolution that are trying to recover that pre-Zinoviev spirit of Bolshevism that isn't perfect. And this text shows, you know, a lot of things that I find lacking but like there's that that core is still there of a, a, an attempt to draw out general principles that doesn't go full Zinoviev. Yeah. It's what what can we really take from Lenin that isn't tainted by Leninism? And then we have Lenin's Leninism. <laughs> I don't know. Mm. I'm not neutral on the term Leninism. It's just, it's just I don't really care either way. It's it it got it got wrecked. By like a lot of things. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but so did the term Marxism and communism. Yeah. Right. Marxism and communism are arguably broader tendencies than the Russian Revolution and like Leninism. Yeah, Lenin Stalin really cemented that as his brand in a way that's kinda of hard to get away from. Like when people in the Ukraine are pulling down statues of Lenin 
part of them are doing it because of the domination of of Stalin. Like, and then part of them are doing it because they think that you know he's like Lenin's like a secret Jew trying to destroy or whatever. You know what well, I mean? Yeah, it's a symbol I, of Russian chauvinism for some of them. Well, right, 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 right. But, it, but there's also you know the mass anti-Semitic conspiracy rightist reason that people would be attacking Lenin statues. Absolutely, like Leninism is why they won't fucking bury the man. Len, he's like an embalmed corpse on yeah. display. And instead of like fucking, you know, put him in the ground, put a nice statue there. For the love of God, let the man rest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's pre- that's that's pretty. It's like a pretty grotesque expression of like yeah. Leninism. It's a perfect distillation of all that's wrong with what Leninism and like freezing what was living into this weird, rigid, dead zombie thing. <laughs> They should have basically just gone full, like, uh, Kim Jong-il and, like, kidnapped the people who developed, like, the animatronics at Disneyland. And you could just have, like, an animatronic Lenin, like, Welcome to the Hall of Communism. That would be great. I'd be fine with that. It would be more objectively progressive because you'd be automating the labor of having Lenin educate the masses. 